Welcome into Downtown the Podcast. It is episode number 81. From our Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of talented folks join us this week with perspective on the music business. One, a country music superstar and historian as well, who's out touring, celebrating the 20th anniversary of a landmark album. Uh, the other has done it all in the music business as a performer, a big hit maker during the British invasion, then one of the most successful producers in the business, working with people like James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt, a uh, manager as well. These days hosts a serious XM radio show on the Beatles channel and has got a brand new book out as well. We're talking about Marty Stewart and Peter Asher who join us on this week's edition of the podcast. Well, let's begin with Peter Asher. He was one half of Peter and Gordon, who scored a number one song in 1964 with A World Without Love, written by Paul McCartney, who just happened to be dating Peter's sister Jane at the time and living down the hall from Peter in their home. As a result, he got the note to uh, know the Beatles quite well and has got some terrific inside stories and plus is a big fan of Beatles music as well. He hosts the show From Me to You on the Beatles channel and has turned that into a brand new book called The Beatles From A to Z. Here's our very interesting conversation about The Beatles with Peter Asher. Peter, thank you for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Always good to talk to you. Love the book so much. I, I love the organization of it, but uh, uh, as you explain, you thought it perhaps might be an easy transition to take some of these stories from the Sirius XM show and turn them into a book, but it, it sounds like apparently this writing is pretty hard work. Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, you'd think that, you know, because this wasn't my idea, by the way. It was, you know, the, the radio show I was doing anyway, and I, I had the idea of doing those 26 episodes of it as the Beatles from A to Z, using the alphabet to supply not only, you know, song titles, but people and places and musical instruments and ideas and all kinds of stuff. Basically, an idea I stole from Sesame Street. <laughs> and and uh, so, but then a publisher came and said, we think that, you know, that A to Z would make a great book. And I was thinking, oh, that sounds pretty easy. You know, just transcribe whatever I said on the radio and it'll be a book. And of course, what happens is you do that, you transcribe it and you start reading it and you go, this is just awful as a book. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work because, you know, the way you talk to people when you're talking to them on the radio isn't the same as, as what you want to read in the book. And of course, on the radio, you can go ahead and play the record. In the book, you have to explain why the record's so so special and so good and what was remarkable about the Beatles. So anyway, it turned out to be much more of a, of a task than I realized. But it was kind of fun, and actually made me look at some of the tunes and some of the ideas and, and things that, that I'd always taken for granted and, and, and try and figure out how to, you know, add, add to people's, if I could, add to their appreciation and understanding of the, of the Beatles and what they stood for and what they accomplished and their great songs. Well, wonderful stories, and, and it expands beyond the sphere of just the Beatles to talk about uh, other artists, uh, adventures on the road, and, and a, a wonderful uh, global perspective uh, on music. And, and some of them, yeah, I, I did what you suggest in the book. I went immediately online and started listening to some music, some that I knew very well, some I thought I knew. And I, I just want to throw a few of them out there from the book. I was so happy to see that you enjoy as much as I do Eddie Izzard's interpretation of being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Yes, it's excellent. It's bizarre and it's wonderful. And I'm a big Eddie Izzard fan. Um, he's, he's totally brilliant. 
I also love the story that you tell about uh, Russ Kunkel. Can you explain how Russ Kunkel was uh, inspired by Ringo's drum fills on, with a little help from my friends when you were in the process of recording uh, James Taylor, especially the Fire and Rain? Yes. Well, when I came out to L.A. to make James's first American album, you know, I was looking to put a little band together, and I found Russ Kunkel. He'd never done a, 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 a session before as a studio musician, but he was actually playing with a, a guy called John Stewart, a wonderful songwriter, not the, not the John Stewart on television, and but a terrific guy. And, and I heard his drumming and loved it because he was doing in the general sense, a bit what Ringo does, which is just play exactly what the song needs and no more, you know? So, whereas you, some drummers frantically try to fill it, get in a lot of flashy stuff, you know, which which has its place and some and is great to hear and see. But Ringo kind of arranges a drum part for the song and Russ does that too. And when it came to Fire and Rain, there's no question, but the, the, the fills, you know, those big boom, 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 sort of fills that Russ played with brushes, which is interesting too. Um, when we recorded that song, they suddenly owe something to the fills in Day in the Life and, and some other Beatles songs where they've got those beautiful, big, fat, solid Ringo fills that, that are just designed precisely for the space they fill. Well, and another one of those is, is one of my very favorite Beatles songs of all time, and that's Rain. What is it about that song that you love so much? Well, it's interesting because it's very different. I mean, in terms of the drum part specifically, since we were talking about Ringo, um, you know, I was talking to Ringo, I told him I was writing about drum fills, and he asked me where some of my favorites were, and when I mentioned Rain, he explained that it was, he's playing very differently on that than anything else he's ever played. He just started playing the drums kind of in a different order, um, and it, they, 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 in a way they're a little un-Ringo-ish, but they're brilliant. I mean, they're quite extraordinary, the drumming on Rain. And there's those places where he and Paul McCartney worked out those fills precisely together, you know, there's that place where the bass plays a melodic line as the drums play the fill. You you you, you probably know the place. I mean, I'm not mm. trying to sing it, but but it's one of those pauses where everything stops for a minute, and they, the drums and the bass have a little sort of uh, moment of their own, and then bring everybody back in. And I love that record anyway. There's so much about it that's that's unusual and original, and that can be said of so many Beatles songs. You know, that's what's so interesting. I, I talk about time signatures and how you know, often they used, um, without even particularly thinking about it, they would have bars of 5-4 and 7-4 and stuff mixed in with regular rock and roll beats in a way that was quite unusual. And they still made it rock. I mean, it still sounded like rock and roll. So it's among their many achievements. I love the story you shared because if you had access to the Beatles that not everybody had. And so you, you heard the song Help before it was ever released as a single, and uh, you, you got to share that a little bit when you were out on the Dick Clark Caravan. I did, yes. It's not something I'm immensely proud of, but <laughs> I had learned a little bit of the song because Paul had played it to me a few times. Um, I mean, it's a John song, but obviously, you know, in the course of recording it, obviously Paul learned it completely, and and um, and I'd learned a bit of it. And I, I do confess that just it was somewhere between sort of showing off and name dropping that that when we were out on tour on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars with, you know, Brian Highland and the Shirelles and the Drifters and all kinds of people, I did say, you know, oh listen to this, isn't this cool? This is going to be the Beatles' next single, and uh, and would show off by playing a little bit of it. And I'm not sure whether they believed me or not. I like to think <laughs> that when Help came out a little while later, they kind of went, oh, he, he wasn't making it up after all. <laughs> 
because <laughs> I'd only learned a piece of it, you know, but but enough to kind of just the you know the the opening part in the verse, which I think was was so great. And of course now you you that would be dangerous. You couldn't do that because somebody would have filmed it on their phone. Right, you'd be in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> We're talking with Peter Asher. His new book is The Beatles from A to Z. And under the letter F, uh, one of my very favorite Beatles songs with a beautiful French horn that's part of it. Can you talk a little bit about For No One? Yeah, I mean, the French horn solo is is, is just brilliant and very original. I mean, you don't hear many French horns on, on pop records. They hear them a lot in classical music and movie scores and stuff. You know, and they have this beautiful, subtle tone they were originally derived from a hunting horn. You know, it was just a, the 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 thing you'd play to you know to to get the pack together. But um, uh, I think it was Paul's idea to to use the French horn, and Paul had learned a lot about classical music very quickly. You know, he he probably learned about all the, all the other brass instruments, but from dance bands and stuff like the one he, his father had. But um, French horn's primarily a classical instrument, so he might have become aware of that through my mother, and her, uh, who was a professional classical musician. I don't know. But he suggested the French horn, and George Martin took that and ran with it. You know, and Between them, they composed that beautiful solo, and George Martin got the best French horn player in the land um, to, to, play the, to play the horn. And I remember at the, one, at the time in London, the, the studio gossip was all about you know, at that time, regular scale for doing a session in the studio, a three-hour session, was nine pounds. And and the horn player on For No One asked for and got a recital fee of 50 pounds. And everyone <laughs> went, oh, my God, what nerve and how amazing, you know, which he totally deserved. And, of course, in retrospect, 50 pounds for that solo is the bargain of the century. <laughs> Speaking of George Martin, uh, a wonderful connection that I learned about in the book between George Martin and your mother. Yeah, isn't that odd? It's one of the strange things that, you know, you couldn't make up, which is, it is true that, you know, George Martin had studied the oboe at the Guildhall School of Music where he, he learned it. And my mother was actually a professor at the Royal Academy of Music, a different uh, college. But he had wanted to take some private lessons and someone obviously had recommended my mother as one of the, the good oboe teachers, which she certainly was. And and so he had taken quite a number of private lessons from my mother long before they met later on in, in a Beatle context, you know. It, it's a, it's an extraordinary coincidence. So the first member of our family to, to meet, um, you know, to, to have any Beatle connection whatsoever was her and George Martin. Though, of course, at the time, George Martin wasn't yet working with the Beatles. You also played a role uh, somewhat in John and Yoko coming together uh, after you started the bookshop. That's a wonderful story. That's right. Yeah, we, we started a bookshop, and then after that got going, we started the art gallery. And my, my friend John Dunbar, who was rent running the art gallery, um, had heard about Yoko Ono and invited her to come do an exhibition in London at our gallery. And... Uh, you know, he she accepted, and they set a date, and we took ads and made the deal and all that stuff. And what what you do often is before the you have the actual opening at which you invite the press and everything. Once it's all set up in the gallery, you do a kind of pre-opening evening and invite friends over to have a look at the exhibition. And that's what we did, and we invited all our various friends over, which at that point in time included the Beatles. So I think we invited all of them, but but um, but it was John who who came, and that's when he met Yoko for the first time. 
One of the big surprises in the book for me was to learn that uh, one of the most iconic Beatles songs could have been a hit first for Tom Jones. Yeah, now which one was that? I remember discovering that and being fascinated by it myself and putting it in the book. Um, which song was it? Long and, Long and Winding Road. Long and Winding Road, that's right. I knew it was some really important song. Apparently, uh, and this has been, been backed up by a couple of people, uh, there was, you know, Paul was thinking about how well Tom Jones would sing it, which he undoubtedly would or would have. And at one point, it suggested that maybe Tom could report it, record it before it came out on a Beatles album, and, and, ha- and he might be the person to have the hit with it. But somehow it didn't happen. Tom Jones had already just finished an album or something, and they weren't ready to, to, to put anything else out for a while. Or for some record company technical reasons, it never happened. But actually, you know, Tom Jones could have done a great version of that song without doubt. Paul often did that. I mean, he he'd write a song and think, oh, this would be great for so-and-so, you know, whether or not they actually did it. But but I think he, he, he perhaps was helped by imagining some of his favorite singers, you know, imagining Ray Charles or Peggy Lee or whoever it was, sing whatever song he was working on would give him a, a new perspective on it. You got to go on the Ed Sullivan Show, and we played Nobody I Know that you performed on the Sullivan Show, but you explained in the book that Bobby Rydell kept you from performing your first big hit, A World Without Love. It's true, he did. It's true. Not intentionally, of course. But what had happened was somebody sent uh, Bobby's manager a copy of World Without Love as soon as it came out in England, which was about a month before it came out in America. And, and, and the manager suggested it to Bobby as a song he might want to cover, which he did. And he made a record of it and came out the same time as ours. And, of course, Bobby Rydell was already a big star. So we were quite flattered that he'd done it, but also worried, of course, that it would prevent us getting a hit. And in the long run, we did get the hit. Um, our, our record took off. You know, we both were in the charts with Bullets at one point, but ours took off and went to number one. And it, it you know, so it seemed to have had no ill effect at all until first time we got to New York after World Without Love was number one. Our agent, you know, was trying to get us on the Ed Sullivan show, which normally would have been no problem because they liked the new English bands with number one records. But the Sullivan people apparently said, oh, no, you know, we can't have them on because, because Bobby Wright did, did that song on the Sullivan show two weeks ago. We can't do the same song again. So, but it didn't seem to matter. So, and I, I, I know Bobby since then, of course, and he, there was no malice involved at all. But, and his version was kind of cool, but different. But, uh, in the end, we had the hit, so all is well. You've met uh, so many people in the music business uh, through the years, but your your meeting with Janis Joplin was perhaps less than memorable. Well, it was memorable in, a, in an odd way, <laughs> because I had made it to Woodstock. I, you know, we'd somehow managed to get onto a one of the helicopters, which was the only way to get to the actual gig. And we'd not only that, but we'd succeeded in getting a hotel room for the night because you couldn't move, you know, the traffic was seized up and the people had abandoned their cars and all that stuff. And I finally got a key to a hotel room somehow. I don't remember how. And we were making our way down the corridor, which was kind of crowded, to the hotel room. And I stepped over a woman sleeping across the corridor and uh, with a bottle of Jack Daniels in her hand and uh, looked down and, and went, oh, it's Janis Joplin, look at that. 
<laughs> then we went in our room and went to bed. So <laughs> not exactly a meeting, but nonetheless, it was sort of memorable. Uh, Peter, you mentioned in the book uh, that the Beatles had four great singers, and uh, and I think that's a great point that you make because uh, people who weren't around at the time don't understand in some ways that th those Ringo songs on albums were a real highlight for so many people. Yes. I mean, the thing about the Beatles is that, that that it was just a perfect storm, you know, that those four people with those four varied kind of talents and personalities came together at the right time and just created the, some of the best music ever. And yes, Ringo was immensely popular. And I think Ringo was the first solo Beatle to have a huge hit as well. I mean, Ringo's had a string of hits, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. And you go back and listen to some of those great Ringo records, they're just terrific. And, his new album, which is just out, which he produced himself, is really good. Absolutely. He's coming here to Bangor. We're looking forward to him bringing uh, the all-star okay, band that here. That show is always great. I love that tour, you know, with, with his all-star band. It's just killer. Well, the book is absolutely delightful. I, I, I read it in one sitting because it's like, it's like being there listening to stories from an incredibly knowledgeable and talented Beatles fan and insider in many ways, but uh, the appreciation that you have of their music and, and of what it spawned in rock and roll uh, is just a delight to read. Uh, the book is great, and Peter, it's wonderful for us to have the chance to talk with you again. Thank you very much. You, those were great questions, and you obviously really read the book, and I appreciate that, and, and uh, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Asher here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll take a break and hear from our friends at Cross Insurance when we come back. Country music legend Marty Stewart. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast, and a little bit of the Pilgrim, Marty Stewart. Scared. I've been scared out here on my own. Lost, I've been lost a million miles from home. Running, tired of running. It's all I seem to do. Twenty years ago, Marty Stewart released The Pilgrim to critical acclaim, but not a whole lot of chart success. But it featured some terrific songs, including that one, written with Mike Campbell of Tom Petty's band, The Heartbreakers. Marty out touring in celebration of the 20th anniversary of The Pilgrim, and we had a chance to talk with him about his remarkable career, including his work on the Ken Burns PBS documentary series, Country Music. Before we talk about uh, the album and the tour, I have to talk about the Ken Burns documentary special. You were such a, a big part of that. Were you pleased with the final results? Oh, I loved it. We worked on that show for like eight years with those guys. And, you know, I love Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan and that crew. They're just, you know, they're, they're as people, are a perfect reflection of those shows that they do. They're just, you know, solid, solid citizens. I love them. 
We talked to uh, to Roseanne Cash, Bill Anderson, Kathy Mate, and we talked with Ken himself. And what we heard from the other artists was just that the incredible level of trust they had from Ken and, and Dayton Duncan, as you mentioned, that they seemed absolutely committed to telling the full story of country music. Well, I think it's one of those shows where everybody wins. Uh, the, you know, the traditional country fan that probably never thought they'd see anything like this ever in their lifetime, you know, is rewarded. And um, people, you know, in, in America and around the world, actually, that have only given country music maybe, you know, slight consideration or light consideration by way of stereotype, you know, this is a chance to really take a look at it as a culture and see how deep and rich and meaningful it is. And the third component to that, to me, is... Uh, young country artists that are just jumping on and mm. all of a sudden, you know, filling up arenas and stadiums. And, and one day they'll wake up and go, what is this I'm really standing on the shoulders of? And it's a good way to, you know, for those for young country artists to take a look and see who they're really standing on the shoulders of. So everybody wins. I love those kind of shows. One of my favorite parts of the documentary, it was a story that I knew a little bit about, and that's your love story with your wife, now of 22 uh-huh. years, Connie Smith. And how old was it when that, uh, well, not relationship, but infatuation began for you? Well, here's what's cool about that. I went up to um, uh, Walpole, Connecticut, you know, way before the show ever came out, just to spend three days with Dayton going through the show, looking at facts and checking everything. And uh, they told that story, and they said that he was 11 years old. I said, guys, I think you got that wrong. I was 12. I said, uh, no, you got that wrong. You were 11. <laughs> they did the math and corrected me on my own story. So that's that's the deal. Well, and you were awfully young when you began as a professional musician. What were you, 13, 14, when you started touring with Lester Flatt? 13. Wow. Now, did your parents realize that uh, you, were gonna, you were going to win this battle and they just said, yeah, go off and, and make your way? Well, it wasn't a battle. It was, uh, I think my mother knew that it was, it was the calling on my life is the way she put it. And I had traveled the summer of 1972 when I was 12 years old with kind of a local group. And we traveled in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and uh, went up to Indiana or Illinois, somewhere like that. So they were kind of used to the, to the idea of me traveling. And, you know, I've said it a lot of times, walking into the, you know, Opry with Lester Flatt was like walking into the Vatican with the Pope. So <laughs> I don't think they would have let me leave home with Metallica or Ozzy Osbourne, but <laughs> Lester Flatt was a different story. And you were self-taught, is that right? Yeah. Wow. And then uh, after uh, Lester retired, uh, you went out on the road with Johnny Cash as well. It's hard to imagine a much better education in the world of country music than working with Lester Flatt and then Johnny Cash. No, absolutely. And what's crazy about that, the first two records I ever had in my life was a Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs record and a Johnny <laughs> Cash record. Well, I remember as a, a younger, not young, but a younger country DJ uh, playing Hillbilly Rock right out of the box when that came out. And it was and it remains such a very unique sound. Oh, it's a, it was a good record. And it was, it, it was the record I needed at the time and what I was looking for that gave me a reason to get a bus and a band of some cowboy clothes and, you know, go out and start peddling our point of view to the world. And I will forever be indebted to Hillbilly Rock for, you know, getting that part of the job done. We're talking with Marty Stewart here on Downtown. Well, this is the 20th anniversary stu- uh, tour for The Pilgrim, an album that was uh, in, in many ways a turning point for you 
is it the album that, that got you back to where you started in many ways? Yeah. Well, Hillbilly Rock was, you know, I tried so many ways to have a hit, and, and I spent about three or four years just getting, just, you know, one failure after another before Hillbilly Rock came along. So I would have pretty much recorded anything that I thought would have got me a job. But uh, Hillbilly Rock was kind of one end of the bookshelf, but and we had such an incredible run, you know, commercially, and uh, you know, in, in the world of country music, up and down charts. Uh, after Hillbilly Rock, uh, over a decade's worth. And then one day I woke up and went, you know what? I'm starting to feel like a parody of myself. It was time to go in deeper and, and find the roots of it and, and the bedrock of it all, and get back to us uh, again, standing on the shoulders of that. And the Pilgrim was a line in the dirt record that took me back, you know, toward my heart. And so was not a commercial success at the time, anything but a commercial success. But it was the deepest record I'd ever done. And so it got kicked off to the side. But 20 years later, <laughs> it's back around with a book around it and released on vinyl with nine extra tracks. And it's been really well received. Yeah, the new deluxe edition is out. And, and people may not know the story of the Pilgrim, your hometown, Philadelphia, Mississippi, based on a true story. Yeah, it was a love triangle down there. Uh, it was a Shakespearean proportion. And the more I told the story to myself, I thought, well, this this is a real story. And, you know, back to the Ken Burns thing. Ken Ken and I talk about country music being it, 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 it is very finest when it's telling stories. It's the stories. It's the stories. It's the stories. So this Pilgrim story popped up in my mind, and I thought, but it needs an underscore. What's the musical score of this thing? And so I scored it from the evol- with the evolution of country music from old time music to uh, to uh, contemporary country music. You know, Ralph Stanley came, Earl Scruggs, Johnny Cash, George Jones, Jimmy Lou Harris, Connie Smith, Pam Tillis, J- Uncle Josh Graves. They all came by to help me tell the story, and it really was a bit of an opera. And so it was probably a little heady and ahead of the curve at that time. But you know, as time has gone on, it seems to have found its spot. Well, it sure has. I, I love the songs on that album. One of my favorites uh, you co-wrote with Mike Campbell of the Heartbreakers, uh, Dragging Around These Chains of Love. Yeah. And uh, that's a song that, uh, you know, I I love Mike Campbell as a rock and roll guitar player. There is nobody in this world that, that makes more memorable parts. Hey, you know, my, I love the Heartbreakers. They were my favorite American rock and roll band. And those songs of Tom's or half of those records, and the other half to me is Campbell's arrangements. And so I went out there with a fragment of an idea to California, and Campbell and I sat down and, you know, talked out this song, and probably an hour later it was done. So I like those kind of writing sessions. Well, as somebody who uh, who grew up surrounded by talented musicians, you know the value of putting together a great ensemble, and, boy, the fabulous superlatives, one of the best and most talented groups in the business. Oh, the band of a lifetime for me. A legacy band. You know, I grew up watching bands. I loved bands. It was the Buckaroos, Johnny, the Tennessee Three, Porter Wagner and the Wagon Master, Merle Haggard and the Strangers, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, you know, on and on and on. And uh, those were my kind of bands. And so the Superlatives, absolutely a 21st century version of one of those bands. You're a great country music historian and also a collector as well. Can you talk a little bit about some of the amazing guitars in your collection? Hank Williams, uh, 1939 Martin D-45, uh, George Jones, 
Martin Guitar Porter Wagner's Johnny Cash's old J200 that was on the cover of so many of those records and wrote so many songs. Merle Haggard's guitar, Pop Staples' guitar, Carl Perkins' guitar, uh, Glenn Campbell's guitar, on and on. So there's a lot of good ones. I invite you to come play them with me. <laughs> well, the country music documentary series uh, also got a lot of uh, airplay and downloads and sales for uh, artists that had not enjoyed success. You have Jimmy Rogers' catalog suddenly exploded as well. Where's country music going? As somebody who values the history of our music, where do you see it headed in the future? Well, I think it's, um, you know, country music is ever-evolving. And the thing that it, it, it feels more uh, pop culture to me now than ever before. And probably uh, it's always been kind of a reflection of us as a people in general. And so there was a time where I felt more earthiness in country music. It feels very suburban to me right now. And uh, but the one thing that I don't care what it does up at the um, at the top of the of, of the country music world is the root system. Is that is the rock of ages, if you will, of anything can happen on top of that. But the root system of country music is so deep and so rich, so vast that it can pretty well support anything that happens on top of it. So. Uh, I love the fact that the roots of country music are alive and well all over the nation. There's, you know, traditional country music being played, old-time music being played, bluegrass music being played, western swing still being played by up-and-comers, young people that still get it in their hearts. But on the top of that, you still have, you know, the pop culture end of country music that are filling up arenas, you know, totally mainstream. So I think it's it's kind of designed to do that from back in the 20s. Marty, thank you so much. I've enjoyed your music for so many years. Travel safely. Thank you, Rich. Thanks for the talk. That's Marty Stewart here on Downtown, the podcast talking music with us. Our thanks to Marty, also the great Peter Asher as well. And thanks to you for joining us. Spread the word about the podcast. Leave a positive review. We'd be most appreciative for that. And we'll see you next time right here. Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.